Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and health group practice leader at Retzel and Andrus. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Christina Kuda, who's also part of our health law practice, as well as our guest, Dr. David Friend. Dr. Friend is currently a partner at Markham LLP, where he leads the Midwest Healthcare Practice and chairs the National Healthcare Thought Leadership Committee. For the past 30 years, he has provided strategic management, clinical, tactical, and financial advice across a wide range of healthcare enterprises. And we're very excited to have him here. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, guys. So today we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic. And I know Christina and I are both very busy uh, handling uh, this particular area. But what we really want to talk about is the outlook that we're seeing or that Dr. Friend is seeing as it relates to the continuing acquisition of practices by private equity, uh, hospitals, and other types of um, you know, buyers, basically. And so we're really excited to talk about this topic. I know a lot of our listeners are uh, either potential buyers or sellers. So why don't we get right to it and tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on what you're seeing. Sure. Okay. Well, you know, given uh, the last couple of years, particularly with COVID, there's been a real intensification of acquisition. Uh, and it's being driven, I think, by a two or three different forces. So let's talk about them briefly. Uh, first of all, what, what do the physicians want? Um, there's a lot of appeal for the individual doctors to be acquired. Um, they want economic security. Uh, they want a lifestyle. They uh, are concerned about the downside of a financial practice, particularly we can talk about as value-based care uh, grows. There's going to be more upside risk, but potentially more downside risk that a lot of folks aren't ready to handle. Uh, the administrative issues of healthcare, electronic health records, the legal rec uh, situations, uh, the way people get reimbursed. I mean, I went, I went into medicine in the 1970s. I can tell you this is a completely different world. So all of these issues, doctors really aren't trained to handle. It's probably not why they went into medicine, so they need help. They want someone to help them. And then hopefully they're looking for some wealth creation opportunities on the acquisition side. So the docs, are you have a motivated group of uh, people to be acquired. Um, the people who want doctors, you've got the health systems. So clearly they are looking for doctors and attributable patients to care for their patients. They are looking for more negotiating leverage with payers, um, with their competitors. So if they have the better doctors, uh, this gives them a lot of uh, negotiating power. And they need patient flow. These, as you know, in most of the United States now, we've got a handful of systems. Uh, there's been tremendous consolidation. And now the uh, battle is on for market share and for uh, primacy, because if you are the strongest player in the market, you get the best rates. Um, the private equity people are looking at this and they go, boy, there's a lot of opportunity to make money here. We can put docs together. A lot of them are, as you know, are using an MSO structure to provide a lot of the administrative services because they can't practice medicine, but they can do a lot of other things to uh, create value. And then you've got the insurers. So I think you've got this confluence, Erica, of just everybody wanting to kind of get married and uh, it's just it's just taken off. I would definitely agree, and and it's interesting because when you talk to solo practices, you are hearing that 
you know, they're tired and they're overwhelmed with the administrative piece of it. A lot of them are looking to sell to perhaps uh, as a retirement mechanism, right? Put money in the bank, et cetera. What I don't see a lot of, and you can tell me uh, if you see otherwise, is a, a lot of the private equity out there um, will take over an existing practice and the doctors merely kind of become employees. Um, you know, whether they're really seeing better payor contracts or more efficient billing or more efficient marketing or management um, is something that, you know, I'm not always seeing. So it's interesting to me, where are they squeezing those dollars from? And is private equity really seeing the profits that they suspected or hope that they're going to see? I don't know if you can speak to that. Oh, yeah. So you're asking really the really interesting question, which at the end of the day, does this all really make economic sense? And I wonder about it. And in fact, I have concerns uh, because I've been, this is not my first rodeo, and I've seen a whole previous generation of physician acquisition that failed and didn't work right. Um, So, I mean, to your point, there are five or six things that if they don't get right, they're going to have problems. So let me talk about them because I think they fit right to your issue. First of all, you got to be aligned. You know, there's an old saying on Wall Street, 80% of acquisitions fail. Uh, This is really true in business, and I've had my share of success and failure. And it's easy to get married, as my mother used to tell me. It's a lot harder to have a good marriage. (laughs) And, you know, everyone's coming together, but you're asking the real questions. Can they really provide better patient care? Jury is out. Can they really get better contracting? Jury is out. Um, A lot of people are buying today so they can flip to someone tomorrow. But if you look at the, the stock market the last two, three weeks, we may be going through a revaluation in this country of a lot of assets. And you know, people thought I'll, I'll pay six times and I can get eight. Hey, what about if I'm paying six times and I can only sell it to somebody else for five? Now they're gonna have to really run these businesses. And a lot of these folks have never actually had to run a successful business. They're not there to flip it now, they gotta run it. To your point, I need the contracts. I need, so the six things I look for, are they aligned? So are the physicians and the institutions acquiring them? Do these people, are they aligned? I mean, the docs may want to provide great patient care. The private equity people may want to create more EBITDA. Those, if it, when you don't have alignment, you've got issues. Second thing, they've got to get the compensation right. You made the point, if a doctor is selling the practice to retire, uh, meaning maybe he doesn't want to work or she doesn't want to work as hard, well, here's a question, what is the buyer buying? And what is the buyer's expectation of the physician's behavior? And this is how in a previous generation, a lot of folks got in trouble. The third issue is the ownership. So let's say I have a practice of 10 docs, but one or two docs really own most of the equity. When the transaction is completed, those one or two people may take the money and run. Meanwhile, the other eight people in the practice are now working for this new player, and they may not have the incentive that you thought they had. Um, That's important. A fourth issue is what are the training opportunities? You know, a lot of the docs, the younger docs, um, they want to be trained by their more senior folks. That was certainly my world coming up. Are these practices providing for that? Because this is actually very, very important. And almost no one's talking about it. Where are we going to train our future physicians, our future nurses, all the other people that you need in healthcare? I mean, they need a stable platform and they need to learn from others. You know, there's real tradition, just like the law, you learn from the people before you. And you teach the people after you because no one is born knowing how to be a doctor. No one is born knowing how to be a lawyer. Um, Another issue is what about recruitment of new physicians? When a practice is uh, sold, they have to continue to be able to replenish 
that group of people. So you need all those other elements. If I'm a young doc coming out, are the incentives right? Is the comp right? Is the training good? Um, these are important issues. And the last one is where is the physician leadership? You know, I trained in business and medicine and very quickly in my own career went more into a leadership position, but that was very, very rare back in the 70s and 80s and it's still fairly rare. And there's a real question of leadership. So Eric, I think you're asking the really important questions. And I think the jury is out, which may be why some of these things start to unwind and not work. And I wonder now going into the next future, if we're not gonna be seeing more of that, but I think the jury's really out. And I think too, like you said about unwinding, I mean, we've seen that historically within medicine, right? There were times where physicians, it was definitely private practice driven, then it was more medical center and hospital employee driven. And then those sort of unwound because that didn't work. Then we went back to a time of private practice, then back to a time of hospital acquisition. So, you know, you're right. Historically, that seems to be the case. Things sort of tend to roll for a while. And then whatever external forces are kind of approaching that, situation will make a difference and then everyone will sort of unwind or change again to the next thing. So how long this lasts and you know right. who is most profitable for and who it benefits the most, I think really is the jury still out on. I agree, but I'll tell you, I'll make a prediction here. I think we may be at the peak. I think the pendulum may be about to come this way. Yeah. And the real marker, I think in all this, in any business, you have to look at your customers. Is this all good for patients, right? At the end of the day, what we really have to think about all of these things going on, how does this really impact the patients? And if it's good for them, but if it's not so good for them, um, then, then we really have to think about it. So Christina, I think you're right. There is a pendulum effect, but I'll tell you, I really do think particularly the last couple of weeks, what I'm seeing, we may be at peak here and we're about to swing back the other way. Um, you know, you may be right. I mean, certainly we're not seeing that necessarily in our practice. Uh, I will say that obviously we're not seeing hospital acquisitions like we were. Uh, private equity, in my mind, is still hot. We tend to do a lot, although we do every specialty right now, I'm seeing a lot more in the cash uh, type specialties, aesthetics, cosmetics, uh, derm, uh, and, and those where I think private equity really believes they can squeeze more money out. So definitely seeing a lot in that area, maybe that's where, you know, it, we're not quite at the peak yet, but it's hard to know. The problem is that we also work with a lot of independent practices. It is so hard to be independent. So if private equity is not buying you anymore, and it's almost impossible to really be uh, independent and be profitable, what are the choices, right? Uh, I, we see practices, you know, potentially having trouble staying open. Some of them do a great job. And I think there's a lot of great resources out there, but for doctors who really aren't business savvy, they only know how and only want to practice medicine, aren't really into the business of, you know, running a practice. This is a very challenging time. So if that pendulum does swing back, what's really going to happen uh, with the way healthcare is right now? It's hard to to speak to. Well, we talked about that. So first of all, I think you're going to see increasing litigation. And we've already, we've also, we've already been involved where, you know, you're on an unhappy marriage, you're on an unhappy yeah. contractual arrangement, or it just wasn't that well thought out, or people had expectations that were unrealistic. And so we've been involved there. I know you've been involved there. And I would predict we'll, we're going to see more of it, where you're going to have physician hospital or physician private equity just disputes. You know, hey, I, I didn't, I'm not getting what I thought I signed up for. I think the second thing that's really going to impact it, but the rate of pace is hard to measure. The movement to value-based care, I believe, is really going to change 
a lot because if you fundamentally change incentive, right? If you fundamentally change people's compensation, you really change the way they think about what they do. So I'll give you a simple example. So um, we'll talk about box, back surgery. So there was, I won't use any names, but there was a major, major company that decided that it wanted to look at the employees having back surgery. And what they did is they went to a major institution and they said, well, you give us a second opinion. This is one of the largest employers in the United States. And the uh, second opinion people, uh, many people thought, oh, the big company will save money because it will just do the surgery for less money at this big institution. But it turned out that when the patients came in to the big medical institution, they found that a, a huge percentage of these people, like half of them did not need the surgery at all. So the real savings came from saying, don't do the surgery. The uh, medical institution got paid in essence to, for an outcome, which was you don't need the surgery. They got paid a certain amount of money to say, don't do it. But imagine if this hospital had acquired a bunch of back surgeons and their whole way of being compensated is to do more surgery. Well, all of a sudden, if there's some other group that says, wait, 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 I'm controlling that and I'm gonna say, don't do the surgery. And I am paid to not do the surgery, not do it. Well, all of a sudden, my power as let's say the quarterback of the care grows tremendously, but the people providing the surgery now have less surgery and that hospital's ORs are not as full. And you're seeing this now. So if you look at the growth of primary care practices, where many of them are going to be quarterbacking the care in a value-based world and will potentially say, oh, don't do this. You don't need this. The outcome is poor. The, the relative flow of dollars goes to these folks because they will be paid, in essence, to think and quarterback as opposed to doing things, you know, doing a fee-for-service. And the government has come out and said of the $4 trillion we're spending on healthcare, which is an astounding amount of money, they think a third or over $1 trillion is either wasted or harmful. So all of a sudden now the pendulum may flip because now there's this huge incentive to stop doing things that don't work. But meanwhile, we've acquired all kinds of docs and built all kinds of infrastructure to do things that maybe we don't really need. Now, up till now, we're pretty much in a fee-for-service world. I think, as you know, yes, there's some lip service to value-based care, but most of the dollars being paid today are still fee-for-service. But I believe that's going to change because the amounts of money we are wasting are staggering. And I'll give you a couple of examples. If you think of the hospice industry, um, people used to go to hospitals and to pass away. The government years ago went out to the hospitals and said, we don't want you to have people die in the hospitals anymore. And they started to measure the metrics, you know this, and the death and the number of people dying in hospitals fell precipitously. And the number of people dying at home grew dramatically. Well, in essence, hospice grew dramatically because rather than spending $15,000 a day in an intensive care unit and having an awful experience for patients and loved ones, for people who are going to pass away anyway, they could go to a hospice for three or 400 hours a day at home. That was true value care, number one, because people all of a sudden were cared for at home. Number two, the government spent a lot less money. Um, the hospice operators did very well. The people running intensive care units got hurt. Um, and a lot of hospital margin was there. So we've already as a society done this. I think we are going to potentially do it a lot more. And I think this is going to completely disrupt a lot of these uh, contracts, but it hasn't happened yet. 
so people really haven't made the change. Does that make any sense to you? Because I really think that may be what drives. Well, what do you guys think of this? What are you seeing? I mean, I do see a change definitely coming in the way payment is made for healthcare services. And particularly, like you said, where the government spends an extraordinary amount of money through the Medicare and Medicaid programs paying for healthcare, and we have a large chunk of the population that's rapidly aging. So the cost is only going to increase further. So something will have to be done because I don't think there's a way to sustain that kind of growth and sustain that kind of uh, you know, cost over time, particularly in the next five, 10 years, when a large percentage of the population really is of the age where they have the most healthcare needs. So therefore are the cost, you know, the most costly. So, you know, I do see those changes kind of coming down. And like you said, lip service to now for value-based care, there's certain incentives, there's certain specialties where they are trying different programs and things to sort of look at outcomes and look at a value-based approach, but it's not been a universal. We are still definitely fee-for-service. But I see government programs having to change for financial reasons. And as we know, there goes Medicare, there goes eventually commercial payers because they tend to follow Medicare's. Oh, yeah, model. Medicare is the chassis. But what but the counter trend to this is look at the amount for the last two years, look at the amount of government subsidy that's gone to hospitals. You guys are in Illinois. Illinois just passed a big bill. I mean, the government is talking out of both sides of its mouth. We want value, but they're also shelling out tremendous amounts of money to the hospitals, the physicians, you, you, you were involved in these things. The question is, is that going to dry up? Because a lot of these systems are on very thin margins right now, right? Also, their cost of labor has gone through the roof, as you know. Um, the inelasticity of nurses is, is unbelievable. I mean, if you are short 2 or 3% nurses staff, the cost of the nursing staff goes up 10, 15, 20%. So we're in a very difficult moment. Um, but I, all, all I know, having done this for a long time, I find it endlessly fascinating, which is why I love the field. I love, it's a team sport. You need the best lawyers and accountants and doc. I mean, it's very interesting and no one's got a crystal ball, but uh, I do think to your point, Christina, just the sheer cost and volume of this uh, older population, they're gonna demand care and they're gonna vote for it at the ballot box. So um, I think we're in for really interesting times. Um, Right. Uh, Erica, I, I just think it's quite amazing what's going on. Well, I think, you know, I, I agree with Christina, the, the change to value-based care becoming a true reality and impacting most private practices out there uh, is very slow. And I don't know when they're really going to feel it. So if we're really not going to see practices being acquired anymore, and we're not really ready for true value-based care, and practices are struggling to stay independent, we are truly in a crisis situation. So I, I really do think the next 10, 20 years uh, is going to be hellish, for lack of a better word, um, where people are not going to be able to afford healthcare, where healthcare institutions are maybe not going to be able to continue to afford the kind of care. Um, and I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, I... Um, I, you know, I'm from Canada, and I don't think socialized medicine is is a solution to anything. Uh, but we truly have our own crisis, you know, going on here, and I don't think anybody is putting out solutions. I, I you know, we have seen a lot of money go out to doctors and and healthcare institutions. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that all that money was uh, well spent necessary yeah. or well spent. Uh, you know, I've seen some practices paying out 
that money in ways that I don't think is what was intended, but they had every legal right to be able to take it and use it as they did. So, you know, I, I do think there needs to be a little bit more thoughtful use of our resources. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting definitely to see what's gonna happen. It's a little bit scary as someone who is getting older and is gonna be here the next 20 years and is gonna need healthcare, you know? It's very- oh, I, Look, I, I'm with, I think I had this conversation with Christine. So I'm already Medicare eligible. So I'm, I'm right smack there. But I think Christine knows this. I had to take care of my parents during COVID. And they both, I cared for them at home. And uh, it was about as hard a thing as I've ever done. I mean, I was providing telemedicine every day myself, seeing them. And, but I had to pay out of pocket extraordinary amounts of money to take care of my father. Because what people then also realize what Medicare does not cover. And, but also just trying to find a doctor or a nurse. I mean, you know this now, if you need an appointment for many people, six months, you, the waiting lists are very, very long. So I do think that ultimately this may become a real political issue because, and it will be a state issue because people, you know, politics is local. People want care. Um, they care about their children. They care about their parents. Um, they vote. Um, so I think this is a very interesting time, but I think for the institutions that are thoughtful, I think they can really do well, but they're really gonna have to focus on quality, on good patient experience, on becoming a lot more efficient, using technology a lot better. Um, they've got to have more of a mindset of an outcome mindset, a customer mindset. They just, what is clear, they can't keep doing things the same old way. And I think those people that are thoughtful uh, will really thrive. And I think a lot of the folks that aren't may not survive. I was out in the skilled nursing space seven, eight years ago. I said, I think about a quarter of the facilities are going to close. I've been on record that hospitals are closing. You're going to see physician practices fail which is something that was very rare, but they're at their trouble, they're not run well. To your point, Erica, if you don't have all these other competencies, you can't really function in today's world. And the other issue, frankly, on the part of the big insurers that are emerging, they're using mid-levels a lot more. They're substituting physician labor. Um, so the physicians really don't have the lock-on care the way they may have had 40, 50 years ago. So I do think there's a lot of innovative ways. Telemedicine obviously has been profoundly uh, influential. Um, this Apple Watch is one of the great medical inventions of all time, and point of fact, will continue. So I think the folks that are very thoughtful uh, will do well, but but they need to structure their contracts right. They need to understand strategically what they're trying to do, um, which is why, you know, for the last 40 years, I have never uh, done any, you know, my view is you need good clinical, good financial, good legal uh, people working together, frankly, to solve these problems. And that's why you know, we're so excited, frankly, to have the opportunity to work with you guys, um, because this is a team sport now. People cannot do this on their own. That, that's my that's my experience. Sure. They just can't. Yeah. It's, too, it's think, too complicated. Go ahead. And I, I think certainly to that point, what you've sort of identified is the fact that, you know, there are scary, potentially scary times and a lot of challenges and growing pains are going to have to happen over the next maybe 10, 15, 20 years. There's also a lot of opportunity for people that really wanna be thoughtful and really focus on some of these issues to do it right and to do it in a way where they can ride out the storm and have good patient outcomes, be financially viable. So there's opportunity. So there, there is some, you know, I think some positivity for- Oh, because the demand, we are gonna spend $4 trillion on healthcare. There's, uh, it, the demand is unreal. So, you know, what a great business. You have built-in demand. You just gotta care for it. Yep. And I, I think, you know, just as a, a final note here is that, you know, Christina and I, we work with healthcare providers uh, almost exclusively. We are very pro-physician and pro 
independent practice. And I think there's some fantastic practices out there. I would like to see a little bit more of healthcare decision-making and control turned back to the doctors. I'd really like to see the doctor input on some of the red tape and administrative nightmare that is being imposed on physicians. If we want our practices to survive, we have to help them out a little bit. I think we need to, you know, start focusing on, on, on helping them, on, on, on helping them give good care to patients and staying alive as really the future of healthcare in this country. We need to train more doctors. We need to train them well. And I know we put a lot of emphasis on, on the hospitals and they play an, an, a truly essential role in this country in terms of our healthcare, but our physicians are really important. And I think we have you know, maybe not treated them as well as we should have over the past couple of decades. And I'd like, would really like to see a, a change uh, in that as well. And I think that's really super important to kind of getting back control, listening to the medicine, right? And listening to the doctors, that's what I'd like to see. Well, well I used to say, I'd like to see less emphasis on paperwork and more emphasis on patients. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, otherwise what happens is that, in fact, the, the thing is when I go to a medical meeting now, almost no one talks about patients. It's regulations, it's compensation, it's reimbursement, it's legal, it's the tech, which you need, but you also need to focus. But can I ask you a question? You, you're Canadian, you've seen the Canadian system. Yeah. Many people think that's the answer. What is, I'd be curious, what's your perspective? My perspective is that if you need an MRI, you might wait six months for it. If you go to the emergency room, you might wait 18 hours and then be sent home, okay? The experience is, you know, I have a son in university right now in Montreal, and when he doesn't feel well, it's scary. And when we talk with the other parents of American parents of children going to school there, uh, they are astounded by the fact that you might wait weeks or months to get an appointment. They would actually rather pay to have their child take an Uber to cross the border back into the US where they could be seen immediately. So it is almost like to survive in a socialized system, you really have a second tier of care where you're paying cash to see a doctor go to a private clinic because if you wanna rely on what's going on there, you might wait a very long time. You, you might die before you get treatment, right? And, um, and you still pay 50% around that amount in taxes to cover the cost of healthcare. So, I mean, there's pros and cons, nobody's gonna be turned down, but the question is, will you be seen in time, I guess? Um, although I have heard that literally their mortality rates are, are no different. So that also says something about, you know, you know, the fancy hospitals that we have here in a lot of places, um, the overabundance of facilities and, um, you know, equipment, et cetera you know, maybe goes too far in the other direction, but I think there has to be some kind of happy medium. And uh, I definitely, you know, I have older parents too, and I'm very worried about them being in Canada, especially, you know, I'm, I happen to be in Quebec, so I can't really speak to the other provinces, but yeah. um, I, I am concerned about what I see going on there. They would be, I think, safer here, um, you know, but other people, you know, might feel differently about that. I don't know. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, like I said, I, I find the field endlessly interesting. And uh, I've been, like I said, I, it's been great for me because I really enjoy working with the docs, working with counsel, working with the financial people. Uh, and I do think our health system is much, much, much better uh, than it was for people are living much longer. There's a lot more opportunity. But at the same time, you know, we can do it a lot better. And I do think all this change is generally very good. Um, but, you know, you have to embrace it. 
and you have to recognize that the world is moving rapidly. Uh, and in particular in healthcare, we were so behind in technology uh, we're, and we're really, that we're like racing. I mean, we're the only people left that you still use fax machines to like transmit data. <laughs> um, if you saw like the CDC literally could not collect the data because it was all based on fax and half the people now have computers. And they go, and half the people don't even know what a fax is. They go like, what, 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 what is a fax machine? So um, I do think it's a tremendous opportunity and I'm really, really excited by it. And I think most of the professionals in the field really are too, uh, to be honest. Uh, the change is scary, but most of the people I talk to are really pretty excited. So uh, I do think things will get better, but things change as Christina, you said, the pendulum swings. And our job as advisors and counsel is to help anticipate this and help people uh, succeed. But for the most part, uh, I, I would say the, the the future is very, very bright, but there are going to be some bumps in our jobs to navigate the bumps. Great. All right. Well, I think that about wraps things up for us. Thank you for that nice summary. And thank you to Dr. Friend for joining us today and for all of you for joining us at the Health Law Hotspot. You can catch our other episodes at ralaw.com. And we'll be back next time with another episode. Thanks for joining us today. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.